Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning from Jasper Chippedijn, who is Dutch, but lives in Denmark, on a farm with his son, who has type 1 diabetes, and with his ex-wife and ex-mother-in-law. This non-traditional approach to co-parenting has enabled all the family members to share the load, leaving each of them more opportunity to thrive. Jasper leads international research on healthy communities and active playgrounds and shares many examples of policies that support caregiving. Jasper also describes a team energy exercise that is such a great idea for learning what your team needs to be the most productive. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. My name is Jasper Schiphein and live in Denmark, where I'm a professor at the University of Southern Denmark. And my home situation is very unconventional. So I share a farm with my ex-wife, my ex-mother-in-law and my son, where we all have our own part of the house, but in practice do a lot of things together and probably function more as one big extended family than anything else. Thank you so much, Jasper, for your time today. I've visited you on that farm, so I'm excited to share this experience with guests because it is unique, plus also your situation as an international researcher. Not only are you living in Denmark with many of the different policies that are available in Europe, but you also can compare your situation and the situation of your female colleagues and students from around the world because you have visited us here in the States and spent time working here and in other places. Just to get started, tell us a little bit more about how you got there to this situation of this intergenerational farm. And it's such an amazing example of an intergenerational village. Yes. So obviously the situation started with my ex-wife and I getting divorced and something I cannot recommend to anyone. But at the same time, it is happening to many people. And 
I think in many ways, our situation is unique, but at the same time, I think it is a situation where we try to make the best out of a situation. And probably when I reflect on that, let our brains to a large extent win from our feelings. So after an initial period where obviously we were angry with each other and didn't want to have much to do with each other, we realized that there were actually still a lot of things where we saw things in the same way and had the same ideas about what we wanted for both our lives and our futures but found it very difficult to do that individually because some of the things that we wanted to do to to get a better work-life balance was that we said we were moving from living in the city center of Copenhagen, relatively large city, at least for Danish standards, said, okay, we want to move somewhere where we can be outdoors so much more, we can spend more time being outside and having a lot more animals and when you are at least part of the time a single parent because we decided quite early on that we wanted to share parenting 50 50 having a lot of animals taking care of them and having a busy job it just doesn't fit so for us this living arrangement made it possible to do a lot of things that we otherwise individually we're not able to do so now we have a situation where we are at least three adults uh, sometimes more uh, when new partners are involved that can take care of a lot of the, the tasks that we have here at home so taking care of our animals we have quite a few different animals both horses and cows and chicken and rabbits but also more common dogs and cats so it takes a lot of time and because we are more adults, we can do that. And it gives us the opportunity to enjoy that part of our lives, but still at the same time, because we can share it, it gives us still the flexibility to work, to travel. Uh, We just need to plan that. Um, Do you mind sharing a little bit more about Quintus, how old he is now, and also his medical diagnosis that may be played into some of your care solutions here? So Quintus is 14 now, and just before he turned six, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease that comes as a total surprise. Strangely enough, the science still doesn't really know why it happens and what causes it, but it happens literally overnight. You go from having a totally healthy child within three or four days, you go into having a life-changing disease that basically stays with us and with him for the rest of his life. And I think taking care of him is obviously a a big priority and would be for any parent, I think, that has a child with a condition like type 1 diabetes. And we've always shared that responsibility very equally. And again, our current living situation makes that so much easier because he can stay in one place. It's just a different parent and sometimes a grandparent that is responsible for him. And obviously with age, he's becoming more and more independent and technological solutions have also made a big difference. So we can definitely see that things have become easier over time. But for us, it has been one of those solutions where there was a big responsibility that we needed to share. And this was for us a very practical way of doing that, making it easier, thinking about the parts that we need to do 
want to do and how we make that possible and help each other make that possible. And I remember when I visited you and he was younger, you had been up in the night checking on his insulin levels. And so you were still having to go to work the next day, having been disturbed in the night. So I remember thinking that's such a great situation where if you have work commitments the next day, that whoever is most available can help. There is a nighttime intervention needed but also just that his routine and diet is more stable because again that's part of you being able to interpret the data that you're now collecting on him and as we discussed recently Jasper and I spent a week together in Colorado recently with the kids and again traveling is so disruptive his adolescence is disruptive so you've got all these things that if you can keep one thing stable his home life that helps with all this yeah it helps and it definitely also helps because because you see much more of what's going on. And it's not just you see it one week and then one week you're out of it, but you see it continuously. And I really think that does help very much in making that possible. And again, here, I guess that has grown or evolved in a natural way for us because we, when he got diagnosed, we're living in the same street, but obviously in each of our own apartments. And very much we quickly went to the situation where we were responsible for him one week and then the other parent was responsible the next week. So I think in many ways we learned that, yes, you can do that, you can manage that, but it's tough. That week where you were a single parent, sometimes I had to wake up 10 times during the night to either check his insulin, give him more insulin or give him something to eat during the night. And then you still had to go to work, you still had to go shopping and do all those other things that single parents do, which again, now in our current situation, which we've been living in for almost five years now, things are easier. And we still try to plan beforehand that we're very clear about who's responsible today. But we typically try to do that a while in advance. So that it's not a over dinner time type of thing. Oh, by the way, can you be responsible tonight type of thing. We try to make sure that each of us knows that at least a couple of days in advance so that you can plan. Again, making it easier and making it clear who's responsible. Yep. That's important because, again, you travel for your work as well. One of the things, too, just as you mentioned, animals, just to let the audience also know that one of the animals you have is a dog that can help you with his diabetes. So just so that makes sense to folks a little bit where dogs can help in this process. So it makes sense that you're focusing on having animals in your life. So Jasper, you and I met maybe 14 years ago. And in fact, I met a colleague of yours, Charlotte, at a conference, and we were both standing there quite pregnant. <laughs> together. And of course, our trajectories since then probably have been quite different because of me living here in the US and staying in a research academic career. And then, for example, what Charlotte and other female colleagues of yours have experienced. So maybe can you tell us a little bit more about what you do see as some of the differences and some of the programs that you're aware of, either in Europe or other places, because again, we've both traveled a lot in Australia, New Zealand, and we have colleagues from there. And I, I interviewed a guest from Australia recently. But I think finding all these solutions from around the world is so important. And also bringing a slight different level of normalization. I think many times solutions are rejected here in the US and we've also experienced that with our research. But actually, if we can see they do work in other places, then I think that opens the options here. So anything that you've noticed? So I think one of the big differences that I've noticed is that it's very 
common here in Denmark, especially for academics, perhaps less so in other fields, but for academics, it's very common for fathers to take three months parental leave because it's fully paid by the universities. So typically the type of contracts that academics are employed in means that you have three months or 12 weeks paternity leave with full pay, which is obviously a luxury situation that most countries outside of Scandinavia, Northern Europe don't have. And recently, less than a month ago, actually, here in Denmark, there was a new law was introduced that now makes it mandatory for parents that the father has to take some of the maternity leave that otherwise, until about a month ago, parents could choose if it would go to the mother or the father. And now the decision has been made that I think it's eight weeks. If the parents want to use those eight weeks, the father has to take paternity leave. And I did that. I had three months paternity leave. And I think it's the best thing. Every father should do that because I think it really makes a difference. So in my case, I think my paternity leave started when Quintus, our son, was about eight months old. So from about eight months old until 11 months old. And this might, to American listeners, sound really amazing. We have 46 weeks of maternity leave after birth. So that is a long time. And so it's close to a year, uh, which really is an amazing situation. It helps families get back on track and really prioritize the young children in that first almost a year. And as I said, now dedicated period of that 46 weeks is to fathers. And in my situation, it was already 14 years ago that I was able to take a three-month paternity leave. And as I said, I think all fathers should do that. And probably I think all fathers should be forced to do that because I think, at least for me, I definitely learned all of a sudden oh my God, this is a lot of work. And it really is. Having a small child that cannot do anything by himself or herself, and you're responsible. And I can still remember, even though it's many years ago, the first week, I was so incredibly tired in the evening. I guess a lot of fathers would say when they come home to their partner who's on maternity leave, you haven't done very much today. I've thought that. I definitely learned the hard way that first week. Oh, it's actually really hard work being at home with an infant. Now we only have one child, but I could imagine if you have multiple children, it must be even harder to do that, especially if they're very young and at home and you're responsible as the parent, the single parent at that point at home, because typically in most cases the father would be at work. It is very hard work with a lot of responsibilities. And I think that for many things, it's not so much the hard work or the time that it takes, but it's more the mental responsibility that is actually what is so tiring. The fact that you can't relax when you are watching an infant, you cannot take a break for three minutes. You really can't. And that is, I think, to a large extent, what is tiring. So I think that forcing fathers to do that and realize how much work it is to be responsible for a young child. I think that should be mandatory for all fathers. It definitely changes the way you see those tasks. I think you get a lot more appreciation for what your partner is typically doing. And at the same time, I think it really improves the bond as a father you have with your child. The Danish and other Scandinavian countries do something similar, a system where those first six, eight, nine months, the mother is the primary caregiver 
if you think about breastfeeding, I think that makes good sense. And I'm sure if other fathers are listening, I'm sure you've also experienced that period where your newborn wakes up during the night and as a father, they're just nothing you can do because the only thing they want is the mother and to eat. So when the child gets a little bit older and you get to this phase where you actually can do something as a father, I think, again, it's a very unique period that is bonding. And I think at least in my case, definitely gives you a totally new appreciation of what your partner is doing and how they're taking care of the child that you have together. No, that's such great an example and very helpful to think about. And again, you and I come from this public health perspective where we understand what mandates can do. I know lots of people regard some of the work we do as being a nanny state and taking away individual rights, which are so important here in the US. But we also understand not just from the policy perspective, but behaviorally, when you make something a default and people have to opt out of it, it's so much more effective at scale. And it's the scale that we need because that's also what changes the social norms. So I definitely value that perspective and it's great to hear it. And I think one of the things that I was posting about recently was, for example, during lockdown, there was definitely a significant increase in the number of publications in men, which is academics is one of our metrics of career success. And the increase in publications was much lower in women, despite both groups having accepted papers at equal rates. So this wasn't women weren't capable, this was men were producing more during the first few months of lockdown. So I think that made me also think there was a situation where dads had the opportunity to be equal caregivers and didn't necessarily take it. So I think that's where the kind of example you gave where the mums do it for the first few months and then the dads in some ways are forced to do that solo parenting time. Because I think when it's in this shared situation, the roles still seem to still be falling on the mother and that men are still able to take advantage of that time to have career progress. And in the US for academics, there's a period where you can get an extra year if you're a parent to prepare your promotional file. And again, the data shows that during that time, dads are benefiting by writing more papers and mums are caring for the child. So it's really important to me that these experiences and these incentives and provisions do still result in equity. Yes, I agree with that. And I think if I reflect again on my own situation, and as I said earlier, I can't recommend anyone getting a divorce, but I think if I reflect back on my situation, even though I had this parental leave and I got the experience of a semi-single parent at that time, a few years later when we got divorced, I truly got that experience of a single parent. And again, as a dad, I think to a large extent, that has probably had the biggest impact on the way that I personally perceive parental responsibilities. Because as I said, I think one of the things that at least I've realized recently reflecting upon some of these questions is that it's not so much about spending the time or the time effort. It's more about the mental Who picks up the responsibility if I don't do it? Where I think if you are in a traditional family where the mother typically would be the main carer for a child, it is very easy and probably not even consciously, but it's very easy for the father to fall back on, oh, yeah, I can do that appointment because someone else is at home and my partner will pick up the slack. I can get out of my responsibility very easily. 
Whereas if you are in a situation where that is not possible, like I was for a long time where in the week where Quintus was with me and I was a single parent, there was no other person. I had to do it all. And again, I think that really made me conscious and aware of, okay, what does this mean to be responsible? And I think that's also an important thing to learn. You have to learn to trust your partner to be responsible. But when you do that, it is also easier to... I think for a mother to say, for example, okay, yeah, tonight I'm not thinking about my kid. I'm not worrying about it. I'm not worrying about the shopping or the cooking or whatever other tasks I typically also do next to my job. It's someone else's responsibility. And if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It's not my responsibility. And I think it would be very healthy for a lot of relations to try that for a while, to have that situation. Again, I'm not sure if forcing is the right word, but to a certain extent, it's so easy to fall back into the pattern that the other person is doing things. And I think most of us, probably men more so than women, if it's easy and you don't have to be responsible, that's what you do, unless someone else forces you to be responsible. It could be an interesting social experiment, I think. I'm not sure if it's good for relations, but that's a different topic, I think. But but I think it would be a very interesting social experiment if more couples would, would try that. Say, okay, well, today, Dad, you're responsible for everything that is related to the kids, to the household, to everything. Okay, you do that. And potentially, you can literally say, okay, three, four days a week, one of you is responsible and the other can really do their own thing. And I think if we tried that, that it would be an interesting social experiment. Perhaps some psychologists or sociologists could make an interesting study of that. I really think that a lot of fathers would all of a sudden realize how much mental energy it takes to have all those responsibilities as well. And even though I think a lot of us think that we're quite good at multitasking, it definitely becomes a whole different level if you have all these other things that are not job-related as well. Things that, are, when you think about it, are actually much more important. I like that idea. I think I'm going to declare Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, dad days in charge. Moms can do Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays. And if that became the norm, rather than us thinking about Tuesday is Taco Tuesday that we say here in the US, how about instead of focusing on the food for once, we're saying, no, Tuesday is dad Tuesday. And that's the norm that we talk about. That would be great. I love that idea. And I think that is so important from multiple levels. Because my husband and I tried to look at sharing the load more. And really, for me, the most important thing for me was to get those breaks, to have total days or total weeks away. And for me, one, to trust him to do it and let go of it. And if it did all go wrong, I was fine with it. I let go of that. And to be honest, it didn't go wrong. Suddenly, my husband realized some of the things that he had to do to keep it all together. But he also just had a different standard of what together was. And for me to look at that and go, hey, the kids also thrived in a different way during that time was so important. So I agree. I think we have to let it fall apart a little more and then build it back with more rigor, (laughs) more rules and more rigor. You and I are so similar in that way. So let's just talk a little bit more again then globally and thinking about policies, because again, both of us have worked in the policy arena, particularly about trying to develop healthy communities um, around the world. And so we have this understanding of what actually does it take to to create systems level change and organizational change? And how do we 
change individuals and leaders. Because like you said, part of this is unlearning the habits that we currently have, as well as replacing them with healthier work habits. So can you think about it from that level of what else can we do to make some of these changes? What actually from your experience of your research could then be applied to this type of social and really public health issue? Because in the US, we're having such extreme problems with mental health in workers, but also in our teens, for example, and we're having a childcare crisis as well. So these are public health problems that you and I try to solve in other parts of our work too. It's a difficult question. And what springs to my mind, and again, this might be very shocking to some American listeners, is higher taxes more than any state. And I know perhaps that sounds very Bernie Sanders style type of things, But on the other end, if you flip it upside down and you look at the Scandinavian countries where a lot of the things that seem very extreme in other countries, not in place in the US, they have been the norms for 30, 40, 50 years in some of the Scandinavian countries. And it seems to work, at least to a larger extent. So a lot of these system things of saying, okay, there is good, cheap childcare available. And if you have a low income, and childcare is basically free. What does that mean? That means that it's very normal in Scandinavia for both parents to work. Why? Because there is good quality childcare that is affordable and close by. At the same time, the norm has become over many years is that it's pointless to be at your workplace from eight to five if a lot of the time you're spending there is not very productive, but you're literally there because all you're supposed to be. So a lot of workplaces here in the Scandinavian countries, there is a lot of flexibility in what time do you start? What time do you finish? It's perfectly normal for people to leave their workplace around three o'clock in the afternoon, pick up their kids. And yes, they will probably spend another hour or so in the evening replying to some emails. But again, there's much more acceptance of that you can divide when you work and how you work most effective. So I I think one of the things that I've been sometimes very surprised by visiting uh, colleagues in the US and seeing some of the university systems in the US is how incredibly much time is being spent on things that can be automated. Some of those things Technology can help. That's a big discussion here in Denmark at the moment, is that where for many years we've had a relatively right-wing government here in Denmark that has tried to reduce taxes. Basically, their argument has been more freedom, more people can decide themselves. And now we're starting to see, because there have been cutbacks in a lot of public sectors, that all of a sudden we also start to have problems with there is not enough staff in nursing homes. And obviously with aging populations, as everywhere, that is a problem because the number of people needing care in a nursing home is only going up. It's the same. It's hard to get enough teachers for schools because teacher salaries have been not prioritized the last 10 years. So they are relatively low and so on. So I think to a certain extent, and I know that at least I would be very happy. Again, this sounds perhaps very provocative, but I would be very happy to pay more taxes if I would know that's okay, but hopefully it will be many years from now, but when my mother-in-law needs more care, it would actually be available to her. Or if I can see that at my son's school, 
oh, an extra teacher would really be helpful in the first sort of grade levels. Well, if a little bit extra taxes would make that possible, I would be happily to pay that. So I think that's at least some of the more, I'm not sure how you would call that, I guess, societal systems that I think are to a certain extent a bit different. Yet paternity, maternity leave example that I had before is again, it's part of that. It's part of this society that says, we have to take more care of people. But that conflicts, and you definitely see that discussions here as well, it conflicts ideologically with that people can decide themselves and choose themselves. So there, this new law that came into effect here earlier in August, it came actually as a quite a big shock because all of a sudden fathers had to take leave. How were they going to do that? That was difficult in some companies. So it will be interesting to see how that develops the next year or two as well. That's great. And I love the timing of this example. And I think too, like you mentioned, technology is part of the solution in the National Academy of Medicine guidelines, use of technology to help physicians. Because if you're in a job where you're spending so much time after caring for your patients, actually doing paperwork, we're actually currently spending about 60% of our times working on work. to make the work happen instead of the actual job we're supposed to be doing. So again, I agree, technology definitely has a place there. And that's part of the National Academy of Medicine guidelines too. So if we think a little bit more about your role as a leader in your organization, or certainly I know you have a lot of respect for our colleague Jens, who's a leader and a father in your organization, to think about what are the behaviors we as leaders can show to help support families, uh, work-life balance, and also to prevent burnout, because we haven't talked about that much, because you hadn't necessarily experienced yourself this experience of burnout. But certainly, I know you were very much a witness to my experience of burnout. So thinking about how leaders can help support their employees through this. Yes, I think that I've been very lucky. So I started working at the university where I work now in 2010. So it's quite a while ago. And at that time, my then boss, who is still my boss now, just at a different level, Jens, he was very conscious about that. He has four children and his wife probably has well, at least as impressive a career as he does. They're both academics. And he, from the beginning, was just very clear about if we can't balance work and life, if we are not able to make this work, even though we have small children, then we're doing something wrong. And one of his leadership philosophies that I think has really made a difference for our research group and definitely to the way that I work at the moment and also hopefully the things that I can give forward as a leader myself now is that his philosophy was as academics, we should be doing the things that we think are fun. If it's not fun, if we don't like what we're doing, we shouldn't be doing it. And I can remember the first time saying that sounds nice, but what do you really mean with that? Is it really true? And what he meant with that, what I learned very much over the years is that I think as academics, at least here in the Danish situation, we're very much motivated intrinsically. So we're very much motivated by the things we do because we like doing them. I think if we miss that motivation, then all of a sudden it becomes a burden. Because I think if we like what we're doing, we're productive. We don't mind working long hours. We can manage why, because what we do gives us a lot of energy. 
And I think that is very much what he meant when he was saying we should be doing what we think is fun, or at least how I interpreted what he means. We should be doing the things that give us energy. And because we are at an academic workplace where it's not a sausage factory, it's not 10 people to do the exact same task. We're all individuals. We're all very well educated. We can basically do whatever we set our mind to, but not everything we can do gives us a lot of energy. Whereas if we work as a team and we focus on, okay, what is it that gives you energy? This and this. Okay, probably your colleague within the same team has something different that gives them energy. And I think it is very important to use that principle as a leader. I'm doing that myself as well with my team at the moment. We take these the different personalities and what gives each individual in the team energy that we take that quite seriously in the sense that we've spent, I think all in all with our new team that we started earlier this year, probably spent about a day and a half doing a very elaborate personality test to try and reveal some of these things to figure out, okay, what is it that gives you, and then you as a member of our team, what gives you energy And knowing that from each other and seeing, okay, what are things that I can help my colleague with, I think is, again, is really helpful because it strengthens you together. And it also helps you recognize if one of your colleagues is under pressure because you see the signals earlier and then it's easier to step in and say, oh, I can see that something is bothering you. Is there something that person is not particularly keen on? Can you take over? And I think, again, we have created a culture in our workplace where is that we discuss this very openly. We're very open about not two persons are the same. And we all need to thrive by doing the things that give us energy individually. And that then gives us a lot of energy as a group. I think having those discussions with the people that I work with, it helps me help them so it helps me see, okay, if I have someone on my team who is a really hard worker, but finds it difficult to take decisions, then that's something where I have to back the person up very much when a decision needs to be taken. They know what they want to decide. That's not the issue. Just need a little push to actually make the decision, which then can hopefully take the pressure off. If making that decision is something that mentally takes up a lot of space, someone else, in this case, me, I find it very easy to take a decision. I don't worry about it. So let me make the decision for you. If that gives you a lot more headspace, I'm happy to do that. And I think th- th- there are similar things there. I know, for example, I learned over the years, I'm very bad at finishing things. I always make a big list with to-do things. I never get to the end of it. Once I accepted that I never get to the end of it, all of a sudden there was so much headspace that was emptied and a lot of worries were gone. The thing that I have to make very sure of is that I have someone in my team who can recognize if there is something that I don't pick up or don't finish. And either if it's important, remind me to do it, or if it's either not that important or someone else is just a lot better at doing it, which is often the case, does it. And again, I think that whole perspective of doing the things that give you energy, I'm not sure if it will help prevent burnout, but I think it's definitely one of the things that's If I look at our team, 
both the smaller team that I'm leading now and our larger research team, which is almost 40 people at the moment. I think it's one of the things that makes it work. We can all be very grateful to Jens. I think that's such a fantastic example. And I love that shift because again, something like fun sounds so great. And it's how do you actually operationalize that? So I think the examples you gave us are actual operationalizations of it. And I also think too, I have definitely made recommendations about job crafting and in talking about what are the tasks you enjoy, because I think quite often we're focusing on tasks that we do out of obligation instead of enjoyment. But actually, I really love this change of focus you even brought to that. We're not talking about enjoyment. We're talking about what gives you energy. So I think there's so many important parts of what you described there is one, doing things together and observing whether you get energy from it or not, and observing when your colleagues don't get that energy from it, like literally going through these mini experiments, let's do this exercise together and see who comes out of it, like bouncing and who's sitting in the corner going, oh my God, get me onto the next thing. I think that's so important for us to go through that process of recognizing it ourselves, but also recognizing in others. I think that signaling and understanding that is such an important part of managing ourselves and then helping manage other people. That's what a keep of emotional intelligence is. So I think that's so important framing it around energy, because I do, I think we forget to recognize in ourselves those times when we come away from things, not feeling full of energy. I keep trying to remember that, that this sort of strategic and cerebral power I have is something that I love and that gives me energy, but not necessarily, you know, um, interacting with people all the time. That doesn't necessarily give me energy. As I try to find ways to help the world going forward, I'm really trying to be cognizant of, of those things in ways where I didn't think I felt I had a choice before. I think that's the thing. There are different types of leaders, right? Yeah, and I think what is important to remember in all of this as well is that it is not in any way admitting defeat or saying that you can't do something, because of course you can. As I said, at this level, we can do whatever we want to do and set our minds to, but some of it will cost a lot of energy and will bring us down, whereas other things will give us a lot of energy and will really help us rise up. If you're expected to do something and your boss tells you, you really need to do this. Of course, you can manage doing that. If you have a lot of those tasks in your job, it is something that you need to have a discussion with your boss about. And I think tell them quite honestly and saying, of course, I can do this, but I don't think it's a very smart use of my resources because I think I can be a lot more productive. Of course, he or she will be able to manage. Is it a good use of resources? Probably not. This model that we see sometimes very much at our own university as well is that academics need to be able to do it all. They need to be able to do good teaching. They need to be able to publish. They need to write good applications, be good leaders, and so on. It's not really realistic. And I think in reality, a lot of leaders, at least the good ones, they don't really expect that either. But there is a lot of perception that is what they expected. But again, I think if you learn along the way, and hopefully if you have a good leader that can help you do that, how you can navigate in the system and find your place together with your colleagues so that all of you can look good. I think that's one of the secrets that is important where, again, 
when we have career development discussions with our colleagues and especially the younger colleagues, it is very much about those type of things to try to figure out, okay, how can we help you reach those longer term goals while navigating the system and not necessarily getting out of the things that you don't like or don't get energy from, but at least do them in such a way that they are acceptable or manageable and don't consume all your time and energy. I think that's so important, focusing on those long-term goals. We want you to be be here in the long term because that's contributing to our success more. But I also think that even just the way you framed it in terms of this is not good use of our resources and seeing your time and your energy as a resource in the same way you would a computer or a software that you invested in. I think if we can use those words, I think those are the words that bosses think through more carefully and putting your own time as a resource. And then also really, as I say, thinking about those costs. I was not great at looking at the costs of opportunities and realizing how draining those things were. And to be honest too, a part of my ego is thinking that I could do it all and not really realizing till the end that I wasn't doing it all well. And that was such an important value to me, but you lose sight of what doing something well is because you're just trying to do it all. So it's a challenge. We all have that big ego and want to show we can do it all. And I think what is important to this is that, yes, of course we can do it all, but not everything gives us energy. I think that for me is really important because, yes, can I do a very elaborate time plan with, I don't know, 20 milestones that I need to achieve? Yes, I can. Does it help me? Not really. So I think it is, you're not admitting defeat. You're not saying you can't do anything or you're not good at it. You're just admitting primarily to yourself what really drives you. And it helps if you a part of a team where it is normal to discuss that and to say, okay, we have different roles and different tasks. And when you get a new team member or when you start a new project, it is something to discuss openly and figure out, okay, well, who fits best to which role and which tasks. And actually a very important part of this that we have not mentioned is that in Denmark, you have coffee and cake to talk about these things and we do not. And I remember when you first came, you always was like, Jacqueline, when's the coffee and cake time? I'm like, what? It's good for your team. Coffee and cake time. It's good for your team. And I'm pretty sure I saw it mentioned in some report the other day, they were using like the word for it to say, have more coffee and cake time. But it is true. Sometimes this idea that you, as a team, as a workplace, that you're not allowed to spend time during work hours having fun together. Of course you are. That is what makes it all work. That's the glue. It's one of those things. We very consciously invest both time and money in taking our team at least once, typically twice a year, for a day or two away. Well, we, we go somewhere last week, 30 something of us went away to go to a climbing park where there are all these high rope courses and things like that to be very physically challenged, but again, also mentally. But the whole purpose of it is doing something together. Yes, we also had some vision discussions and some other things that you could say are job related, but the primary function of those things are is that you're having fun together and that you get to see your colleagues in a different context than just work. And again, in in my mind, a good team, you cannot work together if you don't know each other. So investing time in getting to know each other and knowing 
who someone's partner is, who their children are, what drives them outside of work. It helps you understand who that person is. And I think if everyone invests a little bit of time in that, because it doesn't actually take that much time, if everyone invests a little bit of time in that, it makes all of you better colleagues, which makes it easier to work together, which then again, in a little bit longer term, makes you as the team much more productive. So it's investing time in that and realizing that it's worth doing. And coffee and cake is part of that. I'm not sure if you noticed that when you were visiting our office, but we actually have a, I guess we call it the, uh, the coffee and cake regulative, which is a piece of paper that is on our door in our office. And it was made at a team building event, but it's more or less serious. So it basically outlines all the occasions upon which you're supposed to bring cake to go with the coffee. And it even specifies that if it is a certain type of occasion, the cake has to be homemade. At other occasions, you can buy it. And if it is something really impressive, then cake is not enough. It actually has to be more than just cake. And it was created as it was creating, created half seriously, but it's a good reminder also to celebrate your successes and share that and say, oh, okay, for example, you bring cake if you've had a birthday. In many cultures, I think a lot of co-workers probably don't even know when their colleagues have their birthdays. Is it very important? Probably not that much. But again, it shows that you have a human interest in your colleagues and you're not just working together with a colleague, you're working together with another person. And with a bit of luck, you actually like that person, which again makes working together a lot easier. I would so love to live in a world with cake rules. And I could say my husband would hate it every single minute. It's so hilarious, <laughs> these two perspectives. But talking of that, moving into our last question, do you have a favorite dad joke prepared for me? In English, <laughs> you could say it in Danish or Dutch or German or French or all the other languages you speak, because that would be funny too. Yes, but I actually have, with a little help from my son, who, who is at 14, dad jokes are a very big thing. He actually had one that I thought was really appropriate, especially for me. My son was yelling at me the other day, Dad, why are you not listening? And I thought it was such a strange way to start a conversation. And I definitely know that that happens every now and then to me. Exactly. That's true. That's true. And I think that has relevance back to the workplace too, our ability to start conversations by listening. Thank you so much for your time today, Jasper. This has been fantastic. Any last words of wisdom before we head off? Because I know you have dishes that you have to go do. Back to our conversation about your household partners not letting you up on doing the dishes, actually sticking to what we agreed to and holding you to it. So my responsibilities today, so uh, they're, they're waiting for me. I think one of the things that was important for me in preparing for this interview, which was really nice to do, it forced me to reflect on some of these things, which again, I think is a really good thing to do, which we probably should do more to reflect on what is it actually that we're doing? What is it that drives us? What gives us energy? And yeah, I think again, as I said, and I think I've said that quite a few times, that you're spending a lot of time at work try to think about what it is actually that makes you tick and drives you and try together with your colleagues and your boss to focus on making that the most important part of your job. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides, 
to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, Lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic 
racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course, and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass 
or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Yeah.